Welcome everyone to 451 Degrees, the anti-censorship podcast. Today we are talking to Cecil Charles. Welcome to the show, Cecil. Thank you. It's good to be here. So uh, people have probably seen Cecil on previous episodes of Coffee Break, but today we're really going to dive into Cecil's work and his life and his thoughts and really try to dig in there. So be prepared. It's going to be like a two-minute conversation because there's not much there. <laughs> so Cecil is a singer, songwriter, and guitarist. His uh, content is available on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Amazon. Uh, and you've been into music like your whole life, like from a very young age, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, it, I, I'm an interesting case study, I guess, because I feel like I went professional or even started doing more professional things musically, like post-college. So for me, I mean, but I was singing and playing the guitar when I was nine or 10. You know, you know that's kind of when I started. I was, I, I sang since I was a little kid in little plays and stuff at church and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, it's been, it's been a passion. It's been something that like music has, has very much consumed a lot of my thought throughout my whole life, but it wasn't, but like I went to the Naval Academy and graduated in 2004 and I have my master's in business. I did all these kind of other things before maybe I finally convinced myself that I could do this, you know, full time as a, as a profession or at you least convince into, myself to do it, to, to give it the shot that it deserves, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So you, I, I know after college you went and you headed a marketing company that uh, handled um, credentials for live events, uh, like including music though. So you were in the well, business. Let me clarify. I was okay. I was the head of marketing for a small business. Yes, I, I say small business because it was like a thirty person kind of niche company that existed in Reno, Nevada. It still exists um, called Access Event Solutions. And yeah, they're they're a credential company. They make really high end, like really cool backstage passes for all sorts of you know music acts, but also like sports acts and conferences and things like that. So yes, I was in this kind of like little corner of the entertainment business, um, which meant I got to do all sorts of really cool things that I likely will never do. Who knows? But I'll, I'll likely not do as a performer myself, like backstage at Madison Square Garden, for example. I've done that, but not because I was the performer on stage. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So like I've done some cool things in the business, but um, but now I'm doing it on my own with my own art. And you were, um, you, you quit your job, um, your day job for music when you, uh, were in the band, the pretty unknown, uh, mm -hmm. because you guys kid started an album. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, it's, it's kind of a long story, but I found myself back in Nevada in 2007, I want to say. And, um, I was getting my master's, uh, in business. I was getting my, my MBA. I was kind of not sure what to do, um, I, the, the previous story to that, I, I graduated from the Naval Academy and I was down in Pensacola waiting to start flight school because I was slated to be a pilot and the Navy had a big surplus of junior officers. So they gave a bunch of us the chance to just get out of the Navy and go do something else. And I took that chance. I, I initially tried to switch into Intel because I like languages. I'd studied Japanese as my minor at the Naval Academy. And I was like, you know what, I'm, I think I could see doing the Navy long-term with something that really drove me, uh, you know, intellectually. And I loved languages and I, I still do. 
Um, and so I was like, you know what, I'll do, I'll go do Intel, but they were full there too. The new, you know, big bureaucracies don't always do a great job at, at knowing, you know, their staffing when, when mm-hmm. they're going to need more people and not, and uh, you know, the military is a big bureaucracy. So all <laughs> that to say, they didn't have any spot for me. And, uh, I ended up going back to school and getting my master's. Um, but like, I even had a, a band at the Naval Academy. Like I was writing music then, um, you know, in the hallways, the P ways, as we call them, passageways uh, of the of the dormitory, you know, with other midshipmen writing songs. We had a band performing them. So it's kind of like always been in my blood. But it was a few years later back in Reno getting my master's um, when I formed this band. And uh, and it was it was the songs that I write, which are which tend to be kind of jazzy. You know, they've mm-hmm. got some interesting chord changes and stuff. And uh, and the other members of the band were other jazz students at the university, even though I was not a jazz student. I was there to get my master's. But other jazz students at the university um, took some interest in what I was doing. And we made a band and we played together for like three and a half years. And near the end of that time, we raised money and kickstarted to, to make an album. So we went into one of the top studios in in reno nevada it's not like reno's some hotbed for for music but we had a good studio there with a with a um a guy our uh, our producer who you know has a great pedigree had worked with um all sorts of people uh big bigger names anyway great dude it was an amazing experience it was one of those things where like i was in the studio spending and just to kind of to make it make sense so we raised like twelve thousand dollars and i want to say the the overall album ended up costing like 23 grand something like that it was a full-length album you know we had we pulled in other musicians from time to time the band itself had five members you know so we had like a lot of things to record a lot of orchestration to do and um but there was a there was a moment you know i think we spent like 250 hours on the album it was huge and there was a moment maybe halfway through when i when i realized this was probably 2014 when I was like, this is the most fun, most interesting thing I've ever done. Sitting in a studio, working on stuff that we just recorded, whether it's my vocals or the trumpet player's lines that he just did for some solo. It, it didn't matter. It was like I just watching these songs kind of blossom and grow in the studio is is something you don't really experience until you do. So even as a songwriter, like if you've spent years writing songs, like the song crafting part is wonderful. And it's, it's very much like a sustaining part of, I think what all songwriters do and and why they do it, because it's wonderful. It's probably like writing your plays. And then there's something different and also very wonderful about taking that thing that you just did and taking it and giving it into the hands of somebody else who's very accomplished and very good at what they do and seeing how your this thing that means a lot to you, this piece of art, then all of a sudden starts to grow and blossom into something you had no idea it could be. And so when that started to happen, I was like, oh, wow, this is the coolest thing I've ever done. And so it was shortly thereafter, I was working for that company and and I was already the head of the marketing. And like I said, it was a small business and I wasn't really sure, like, you know, do I stick with this company? Do I need to like go further my career by taking a job somewhere else and i'm like but the thing that i really want to do is figure out what music is for me how i can play a part in it and i knew that i loved writing songs and i knew that 
a lot of other people were taking an interest in the songs that I was writing. So I had some friends who had lived in Nashville previously and still had friends in Nashville at the time in like 2015, 2016. And so they, they told me, they're like, if you really like this, we think you can do it. I mean, you're definitely a songwriter and you, you're making great songs. So why don't you consider going to LA, New York or Nashville? And if you go to Nashville, then here are some people who will happily like, you know, give you a couch to crash on for a while and then like help you get your feet under you there. So that was kind of the, the genesis, but it, but it had a lot to do with, you know, like playing with that band, the pretty unknown and playing with these really accomplished musicians and, and doing it for real. You know, that band I think was the first time I ever really like did music for real. And it was cool. It was amazing. So the, that 250 hours, I saw that uh, listed several times on the Pretty Unknown website and on your website. And I, I wanted to to clarify, was that 250 hours of actual like recording time, session time, studio session, session time? Yeah, studio yeah. session time. Well, yeah, that's a lot of studio session that's a time. Lot of, I mean, that's why it was $23,000 or whatever in total. Yeah. Because that doesn't... <laughs> And that doesn't include the, the, the costs that come after studio session time with audio mixing. I mean, he, he did the mixing for us. So oh, he did. You know, <laughs> when it comes to production, music production, it can take place all over the world. You know, you can, mm-hmm. you could be in your little like uh, sound isolated closet, you know, laying down lines into a, into a microphone and then sending them digitally to some producer. But that, that session time was actually us in the studio working with the producer and then also his time to mix it afterward. Okay. Okay. So yeah, but I mean, it was, I mean, and I was there for a lot of the mixing too, you know, I I would be there or I would come by as soon as he was after he'd spent a couple hours on a new song. And so I'd I'd be able to come in and say like, Hey, I think, I think the guitars need to come up or down or whatever. Yeah. I was just thinking that, that you would probably want to, you know, feedback on, you know, different mixes and stuff like that. Um, that's all incredibly interesting. And it's, and you can still buy that album, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. You um, can, I mean, it, it's not like it ever, we weren't signed by a record label, so it wasn't yeah. like the album ever got picked up and mass shipped out to every <laughs> tower records in the country. Not that there are tower records anymore, but um, <laughs> yeah, that never happened. But yeah, I, I have all the albums and, uh, and they're available. So yeah, you can, and you can buy them online through the website, the pretty unknown.com. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I noticed that you, uh, you mentioned on your site that you write pretty songs and I'm not quoting that myself. You put those quotes around there and you sure. said, you said that Mozart writes pretty songs, but so does Led Zeppelin and Tool. And I was wondering if you could expand on what your idea of pretty is, um, since since that seems very important to you. I mean, I, I I would assume you wouldn't mention it without it being important to your process. Sure. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's, we're talking about beauty, right? And beauty, if anybody has not seen that Roger Scruton documentary on why i think it's called why beauty matters it's fantastic he's a philosopher he goes into kind of he's really trying to look at what's going on with contemporary art or specifically the contemporary push to tell people that these very unbeautiful things are actually beautiful and why that causes cognitive dissonance and why you don't actually have to listen to people who are telling you that this 
pile of crap, you know, but it happens to be in a museum is beautiful, you know, when it's a really fine nice. art so, problem. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I, I brought him up only because like you're asking a question of what is beauty. And, and I think that it's a big question. So it's not like my answer is going to be some definitive answer, but you know, when it comes to music for me, like, I mean, I'm drawn to it because there's something about the way certain melody lines over certain chords underneath them, they, they cause a vibration in the, in the brain and in the human body um, that, that I think evoke feelings, evoke meaning, you know, and it's not, I mean, we've all listened to terrible music, so it's, it's not like every piece of music does that. It's the good music, but what is good music? What is quality? Um, you know, Robert Persig wrote a whole book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, all about this dive into what quality actually is. And it's, it's not a simple, it's not a simple answer, but I guess I would say that there's, um, you know, the, the word finesse, I think has some sort of parallel to what I'm talking about. There's like the correct placement of melody over chord, and there's the correct kind of movement of chord structures, not correct as in there's always only one way to do it, but <laughs> But there are ways that seem to work um, in that specific instance, you know, in one song, maybe, you know, going from a C to a D or whatever, like works in that moment perfectly for that moment. And, for, and you can tell because it causes a feeling inside the listener. I mean, feelings are super subjective. So, you know, some people get really excited about there's this band that my friends in high school there was a band called Burning Witch. I don't know if it's still around, but it's like really heavy guitars. And then the guy's just like kind of Slipknot style screaming, you know, but he's mm -hmm. like making it, he's making it sound, um, he's making it sound like a, like a demon or something. Like he's trying, he's going out of his way to make these like horrible sounds. And I have these friends who loved that. And so <laughs> I didn't, I it was not, it was not what I liked. But I have friends who do, and so I'm willing to say that um, simply that different people resonate with different things. You know, does that ultimately make you know one thing beautiful and one thing not? I I don't know. I think it's all case by case basis. But um, but when it comes down to it, I think like melody and chords, and you can do that with Led Zeppelin and guitars, and you can do that with Mozart and cellos and you know harpsichords. Like you can do, you can make those cool combinations with all sorts of instruments. And, uh, and I think it's just important that like, that artists focus on pretty. And like, I think pretty, I hate the word pretty. I know I put it in, in quotes, but it's, it, I mean, it sounds so effeminate. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with effeminate, but as a man, like trying to make something pretty, like it's not the right vibe, but I'm not sure that I'm not sure what the correct word is because I want to, I want to make things of beauty and I want to appreciate things of beauty and they're all around. So. I, that's pretty interesting. I, thank you for answering that. Um, I, I know who Stratton is. I'm reading fools, frauds and firebrands right now. The man is uh, pretty amazing in how he thinks about things. I, so I, I, I'm now very interested in his documentary. Um, the documentaries <laughs> in one conversation that he had with, um, with Douglas Murray is, is all that I know of him. So I haven't read any of his work. So you know more 
Tell, tell me about his work. I've got to plug. I forgot to plug my computer in. So tell me about his work. I want to do that. Uh, Scruton uh, has, an, has a book called Fools, Frauds, and Firebrands, Thinkers of the New Left, where he talks about um, a lot of the uh, socialist and communist uh, forebearers uh, in thought. Um, okay. And uh, sometimes he does not actually need to say anything. He just quotes them. Uh, and that's enough, <laughs> but he can be, he can be a little acerbic sometimes in that book about, um, Oh, he doesn't mince his words. That's for sure. No, he does not. And it's actually, it's quite enjoyable. If you're, if, if you're going to be reading something as dry as talking about philosophy that can sometimes be, he can really, um, do some wonderful things. I think he, he called, something like relentless abstraction at one point, like, like the writer was bludgeoning you. And I, I, I thought that was a great turn of phrase. Um, so he's really amazing. So I, I'm, I'm very glad that you mentioned his documentary. I also really like Douglas Murray too. Um, yeah, in the middle too. of reading the madness of crowds. Okay. You? Yeah. I haven't read it yet. No, no. <laughs> it's pretty good so far. Um, but okay. Uh, back to your music. Um, uh, you mentioned that, uh, and this is probably a thing for an art, a creative of any medium at this point, the idea of the internet and how it affects, um, the spread of our art, because you mentioned streaming. Now music has its own kind of, um, like situation in the fact that people don't pay for Spotify necessarily, and we're not paying you directly uh, when we, uh, listen to your music on Spotify. Um, and I, I would like to, uh, ask you like to expand on how, like, what are the pros and cons of how the internet allows you to, uh, spread your wings, um, or stifles you, uh, when it comes to being a musician? It's a great question. It's something that I've, I've thought a lot about, and, uh, I don't know that I have I have the answer to it, but I mean, it's, you know, in a sense, it's technology always disrupts things. And in this case, you know, back probably in what, 97, when did Napster come out? Whenever Napster came out, mm -hmm. you know, and it, it, basically when people realized that they could very easily listen to any song ever, um, it, you know, it, I mean, in a sense, yeah, it totally like takes the the value of that single experience and potentially changes it in a very big way. Not necessarily to the the listener, though. Maybe you know. I mean, I think back a hundred years ago. You know, before they had, or right around the time that they first had, um, like the wireless radio. You know, you watch Downton Abbey, for example, and they're like getting all excited yeah. about like we get to put a wireless in. And and you think about before that, you know, they had um, a, what's the record player with a big horn? What is that oh, called? Gramophone? Like gramophone. Yeah. And so, you know, they had gramophones and whatnot. But like but but then before that, you just had instruments and you hopefully had somebody to play them or you had to go somewhere to listen to people play music and you know, as a person, I, I just described the, the visceral, the reason that I love music is because of what it makes me feel like. And I've been, I don't know, I've been thinking a lot more about 
I think we're all very much governed by sensation. Um, and, and we don't put a lot of stock in that. We don't realize how governed we are by sensation, but we're always like pursuing something that feels good, whether it's a, an abstract as what, as what uh, Scruton was attacking that one person about being too abstract, like people just getting super caught up and feeling good about something that they're thinking about or some philosophy um, or just doing something nice for somebody else or like, you know, pleasure of somebody else touching you, like sexual pleasure or the pleasure of like sugar on your tongue, you know, or like the pleasure of being full and not hungry. I just think so much of it, of our life is, has to do with following these feelings. And I think that um, at its core, I think that's what music does. Good music makes you feel something. And um, yeah, so it's, it's interesting because that I don't think should ever be discounted. Um, I just think that, you know, good art makes you feel things. And, and I also know that human beings can get overloaded by sensation and our sensory, our senses get dulled by too much of something. Um, there's a, there's a line in the Tao that has to do with, uh, fill your cup to the brim and it'll spill over, um, keep sharpening your sword and it will blunt. Um, and I think it says something about like tastes dull the, the tongue. And I think, I think there's something to this idea that we can overload ourselves with good things. And this is all kind of coming back to the idea that like I can jump on the internet and listen to any song I want ever now you know and so like in some ways that reduces the the value of the music itself reduces the value of that experience can we go back to anything else probably not you know so it's I'm, i don't want to be a luddite and say like, like oh we should go back to where you only get to music listen to music once you know on, the, on a sunday in church or something like that. <laughs> of course not but i mean but it's fair to say that that when everything is at our fingertips, then we, we care, we strive to get that thing less because it's mm -hmm. just there. It's um, the, what we earn too cheaply, we uh, esteem too lightly, right. <laughs> essentially. Exactly. Who, who said that? Is that, is that a, just a... It is a quote, and I don't remember who it's by. <laughs> it's okay. Just, just say Voltaire said it, because <laughs> he said a lot of things that chance. he didn't really say. I don't know. <laughs> Um, so, so there's that aspect. And then there's like the actual aspect of the finances. Like when it comes down to me selling you a CD or an LP or a record, you know, like selling mm -hmm. that thing to you and then getting money from that, um, that transaction was much more straightforward than it is now in terms of, you know, you, you, you upload your song to something like CD Baby, which is a publishing, an online publishing company. And then th they're in charge of essentially distributing that song to all of the outlets that they can, whether it's iTunes or Pandora or wherever. And then they're also in charge of, of getting the licensing fees from those various services, those online services, and then getting your money back to you, you know, and CD baby is just one example of, of a company that does mm -hmm. that. Um, you know, but, but the, the rates that Spotify pay you, you know, those, those were set initially, maybe, maybe they have been adjusted since probably, but, but the idea is like, that's just a rate that Spotify set and you're agreeing to it tacitly, like by, taking part in their business model, <laughs> you know? And so, so 
so from a value standpoint, like we're in a weird age because, and I've said this before, um, we're in this weird age because we've never had to quantify the value of a single experience of a song. Like before you had to buy the record or you bought the, even before records, you had to buy the sheet music, you know? And so publishers would make money selling actual sheet music of the music. And then it was the record of the music, um, you know, and then it was the cassette or the CD or whatever. And now, and then sometimes you were paying for the MP3 download, but now it's like, you're just paying for this month to month rate where you're allowed to experience whatever you want as much as you want. So other than a jukebox, other than like having to put a dollar in and getting a dollar's worth of a, of a song or five songs or whatever, like we didn't ever have to pay for a single exposure to music. And so, you know, the whole music industry, I think, is kind of up in arms right now because nobody really knows what that should be worth. You know, and you, got all, you have all the artists going like I'm making zero dollars or, you know, 20 cents from, you know, 10,000 plays of my song and and you know, I get, I get the outrage of that. And then at the same time, I'm like, yeah, but we're talking about a product that has never existed before this single stream experience. So, it's you know, my, my MBA, my business side of me, is like, <laughs> I, I don't have a good answer. Like we're in a weird spot. This isn't a product that it's not like all of a sudden they changed everything of, of this, you know, LP is now worth $0. No, you still have to pay $15 for a vinyl, you know, that's still that price, but there's other product called a stream and we don't really know what that is or or how to quantify that so it's a weird it's really, spot yeah it is and i i realize there is an uh, an analogy there's a system for that for books too because there's something like scribd where you you pay a mm -hmm. fee every month and you get access to all the books that are on there and artists can put you know writers can put their books on there if they want to or not but uh, so that that from that perspective that's there um, I don't think that's, that exists for plays, but okay. it, uh, I, I do think it exists for art though, like visual art. Um, I'm really? just not, how, how would that work? Well, because, um, well, as NFTs start like to you grow, get to I look at the Mona Lisa for as long as you want. <laughs> <laughs> just this month, just this month, we're taking it down. <laughs> I'm at, like mostly it's probably going to be indie artists, but it's it's uh, my guess is that it's it's going to be a, a counter movement for the most part to the the fine art world mm. and their you know whole as you put it um, really as Scranton and and a lot of people have pointed out that the fine art world is is really captured by absurdity. So uh, that would be my guess is that it, or at least I hope they're doing something uh, anyway. <laughs> um, but okay, so you are you are not just a musician and songwriter, though. You are kind of a renaissance man. And I love this kind of attitude because I, I always think that it improves everything you do to, to try things. Um, it's the reason why my, my online name is Alex of All Trades. So you mm, are also okay. an actor, an essayist, a painter, a photographer, is, and a philosopher. Changing my my title to Cecil of all trades real quick. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I mean it's a it's a big chunk of different kinds of art. You've got writing, uh, play acting. You've got uh, philosophy. And I mean it, it's a it's a lot of um, you know irons. 
And uh, how do you devote much time to these other things? Or is the music still, you know, the centerpiece? Uh, how do you balance it? That's a good question. Um, I would say before, well, I mean, the, the truth is, yes, the music is definitely the centerpiece. I mean, that's what pays the bills. So that's, and it's also the thing that I'm consistently the most excited about and, and consistently brings me the most joy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I find so many things interesting and I've spent large amounts of time writing numerous essays on my thoughts about life or philosophy or God or art or whatever. And I put those online and I'll share them and, and I get a lot of good feedback, but you know, it's like, it's not that I'm doing that for, um, for some sort of financial, like that's my career. And yet at the same time, I look, I know how much time I spent on each of those individual essays and how much they mean to me, you know? And so I feel like they're very much a part of the art that I do. And that's, you know, so, you know, in, in some ways it's like, I know I put up, I put on my website that I do these things that I've, I've, I've been in a short film, you know, based out of Nashville when I was living there. Um, so, so I don't want to come across as like, I'm a Hollywood actor and I'm making all this money with, like selling all my essays to the New Yorker. It's like, no, none of, not that. But I, but I put the time into those things when I do them. And I, I put the intensity and the, the seriousness or the sincerity into those art forms to where like I, they bring me a huge amount of joy too. I just don't tend to do them as often. It's funny. I don't know if you feel the same about, um, about playwriting, but like writing essays for me, it, there's definitely that there's like the mental block of inertia where my brain knows how much effort is going to have to go into the writing of this essay, whatever it is. I'll talk myself out of doing it. And um, whereas I also know that like, if I were to just get started on it, that then the momentum and the joy of the writing itself would pull me into it. And all of a sudden I, you know, 10 hours later, I would have something I was really proud of. But that's an interesting, like, I think a lot of artists and people suffer from some sort of like, you know, at least I do. There's, there's some sort of block or a, an obstacle because you know how much time it's going to take. And I think that's one reason why, um, why music is so great for me. Cause it's like, I can pick up a guitar and practice a song, you know, I can play it three times in 10 minutes or 11 minutes. And it doesn't mentally seem like some big thing that I have to get into that I have to like, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> prepare for and think, you know, like I can just die right in and all of a sudden I'm enjoying it. And all of a sudden, and then all of a sudden it's three hours later and I've been singing in a garage for three hours practicing, you know, and then I'll, and then I'm better. So, so yeah, I like all the, I, I think that life is, incredibly full of beautiful things. And um, I think those come in the form of, of words. They come in, in the form of um, ideas just as much as they come in the form of music or films or visual art or just a perfect natural vista or, mm. or a beautiful person. You know what I mean? Like, I just think it's all over. And I, I don't know. I'm, I think I described myself in some, on one of my websites is being very interested 
like I, people can be very interesting and, and um, I, I hope some people find me interesting. I, I like to think of myself as interested. Like, I just think that the world is really interesting. There's so much shit to like, just dive into and, and explore. And as people are willing, and I love, I love this whole format. I love what's happening in our day and age of these long form conversations that, that people are tuning in and listening to, because you're getting to see people just like you, other human beings spending a lot of time wrangling with thoughts and talking about what it is to be alive and what we're doing here. And it's like, nothing bad comes from that. That's all good in my mind. I mean, yes, people can go down incorrect roads or, or get their philosophies all mixed up, but in general, like people talking about what it is to be alive, like that sounds a lot healthier than putting on the next episode of the Kardashians. <laughs> it just does. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, reality TV isn't, I wouldn't call it the healthiest thing in the world. Um, right. When you, you brought up the idea in all that of like, what, what would block someone from getting work done, especially if they are into a bunch of different things. For me, it's the idea, I end up procrastinating by doing a different project. Oh, like totally. I know this one's more important. It's due date is closer, but and I set my own due dates. It's not like someone else is telling me when this is due. I'm setting the due date. And, but then I'm like, but this one, if I do this one <laughs> I, uh, and I get wrapped up in it, there's no reason right. for me to do it first. But I, I and then I, uh, I snowball into the different project and I end up procrastinating the other one um so that's my thing um uh, and why i like the time that is put into my projects i i don't that i don't hardly conceptualize that myself um oddly enough uh which is weird because i have to plan out i have to time management and (laughs) i don't do it um but yeah you've you've written so much and I found something that you wrote, like you wrote the why I hate politics.com blog. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. From, uh, from April 25th, 2020, um, about, um, about the virus and how people are reacting to it. Now there were a couple of things in there that like I didn't agree with, but there, which I didn't expect to, I mean, um, sure. but like one of the things you say in that, that I thought was 100% yes, more people need to feel this way, is that saying I don't know is okay uh, because it, it opens up some humility. And can you, can you tell me like how you got to that kind of thought? Hmm. How I got to the idea that I don't know is, is, a, is a good, a noble thing. I mean, because obviously there are truths out there. And like we, I think we're also seeing the opposite we're seeing the the opposite in which a lot of people are like i don't know but it's like no it's really happening right there you know this thing is really happening so um you know it's not it's not one of those rules where it applies perfectly in every situation but that but all that to say um i think i think a lot of it is um how i look at life spiritually um i think a lot of it has to do with with I think that this experience that we're all having is is a mystery, and and, and it's 
it's easy to um, to want to quickly align yourself with some with something that some other wise person or some scientist has said about what we're all doing here. But, you know, when it comes down to it, like the experience you personally, Alex, have had in your life is different than any experience that anybody else has ever had. And it's the same with every other person. And we wake up into this thing called life and it's filled with all sorts of mysteries and the fundamental mysteries of like, what are we doing here? And, and how does this all even come into being? Um, I, I think, I think people, it's, it's not exactly sure how to say this, but I think that, um, people very quickly want to get out of that feeling of uncertainty. They want to, they want to rid themselves because I think our brain, our brain knows that when it, when it isn't able to classify something, when it's not able to quickly put a definition on something or to say that it's good or it's bad or whatever. I think our brains do this like spooling thing where they're just, if they haven't been able to conclude, then they're still just sitting there spooling, like looking for more information. When do I get to conclude? When do I get to conclude so that I can then move on? You know, because I don't want to sit here not knowing, is this thing a danger to me or is it not? Is this person good or are they bad? You know, or is this idea good or bad? Because if I have to sit there and think about it, then there's something about uncertainty that I think is like, an, it's a, it's an unpleasant feeling for everybody. But I think the truth is most of the things in life are pretty uncertain. I mean, to a degree, like when, especially when we're talking about politics and we're talking about things like a virus that's going all over the world. And we're talking about the best ways to counteract it and how people should react and, and, what people should feel okay about telling others to do. I mean, I think that's the other big thing is like, come to whatever conclusions you want, but as soon as you start telling other people, they have to agree with you or that they have to do what it is that you say, then I think you're getting into a, a, a whole, whole different realm. I was about to say, whole, I did a whole thing on Twitter about asking people, do they say whole nother in conversation? <laughs> It's like Americans. Do you say whole nother? I just I did. There we go. <laughs> but yeah, when you get into that like realm of I'm so right that you now have to do what I say. I think that's why I, you know, I, I grew up with a dad who was more libertarian, you know, like probably small L libertarian and um, socially more liberal and fiscally more conservative and just kind of wanted people to be able to do what they they could do and be aware of the fact that governments can get tyrannical. And I think there's, I'm happy that you asked, asked me this question because it's like, I'm putting this together in my brain now, but it's like tyranny is certainty. You know, it's, it's like, there's, there's an, there's one answer for everything, whatever it is. And that's the answer. And you can't question it. Whereas freedom is uncertainty. Freedom is, being willing to ask the question, being willing to, to know that even if even something you're so certain about, you could be wrong about, you know, I mean, I, I tell myself that, like, I don't, I'm not, I don't know that I, I'm not a Christian. I'm not like a, I was raised Baptist, but I, but I'm not a Christian in the sense of um, that. I look at the Bible and I think of it uh, literally, or that I'm praying to Jesus Christ when I pray. 
Um, and I guess what my whole point is that I think that people need to understand that there is, you could be certain, but the Christianity specifically is like, I could be wrong. I could die tomorrow and show up at the pearly gates and, you know, have somebody ask me like, do you believe in what you did in life? And, you know, did you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and savior? Like I could be wrong about that. I'm okay with the fact that I could be wrong. Um, I, I wish more people were willing to say that they didn't know that they could be wrong or that they believe this, but that they could be wrong. Because I think there's that gap in there that, that provides the necessary barrier to keep you from doing really bad things to other people. I think people do really bad things to other people when they're so certain of, of their own mindset, their own perspective. And this other person over there is disagreeing is, is, is like a fly in the ointment of the life of this person here. You know, and it's like the fact that they disagree with me is ruining my whole life my whole experience of life because it's because it's somebody who disagrees which means that maybe i'm wrong you know and people people kill other people for disagreeing that's like the history of humanity and i think so much of that has to do with the fact that like we don't want to be uncertain we hate being uncertain I, yeah i know it froze for a second there but like life is this it, it's a mystery you never know what's going to come next so you know, just take a little bit of humility. And I, it's interesting that I you brought just, it. Was that the one where I put, where I made like a graphic about like people wearing masks? Yes. Where you said, yes. you don't need a mask, your head's said, up your ass. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's so funny. So to put, to give context, this was what, April of 2020? Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> so April of 2020, nobody knew if masks worked or if they didn't. My thought was like, just do it. Like, just try it. This was me thinking masks aren't going to be around for two years. We're going to figure out if they work or not. And then we'll get rid of them, you know, if they don't, if they don't work. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but I remember making that graphic and going like, it's snarky and I don't like snark, but I think it's right. But I don't know. And I haven't taken it down. I've thought about it numerous times since, because the graphic was me saying like, don't worry, you don't have to wear a mask. You have your head up your ass already. And and I'm like, I could go take that down now and probably get myself out of some trouble because I don't really agree with that anymore. But I'm like, you know what? I said it then because the point of it then was like, let's try this thing. I mean, we're humans. We don't know what's going to stop XYZ virus. Or at least we haven't. Uh, educated our population very well to know what's going to stop XYZ virus. So let's just give this a shot. And then like anything else that's tested and if it doesn't work, then we can stop. Of course, that's not how it turned out. And I have a much different view of, of what the government should be able to tell us to do and what they shouldn't now than I think I did then. Well, yeah, I, um, I've written things in the past that I've left up in the same way where mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't think I agree with this anymore. Right. Um, but I think that speaks to the idea that our culture is not necessarily okay with personal growth um, and changing your mind. Uh, speaking to that idea that that admits uncertainty. 
Right. If you're willing to change your mind, you're, you recognize the uncertainty of your past thoughts, which means you probably recognize the uncertainty of your current thoughts. Right. And um, so to me, I think it, I think it's admirable that you left it up. Like, honestly, uh, it, it, I think it's a good idea to leave, leave it up. I think it speaks to your growth as a human being and also your, your willingness to recognize who you once were. I mean, that was only two years ago. And this oh, is sure. crazy yeah. two years. Well, <laughs> and like I said, like the idea of let's all just try masks for a while. Still on its face, I don't think is a bad idea. It's mm-hmm. you have to factor in. Yes, but you have a political climate in which they want to make they want to they want to demonize a certain class whenever they can and you have a political climate in which or just a human climate in which um you know you give people a certain amount of of power and it's going to corrupt them and you make everybody wear a mask and you make it obligatory and regular humans will turn on each other for not wearing masks regular Mm -hmm. humans will deem it's not just the president of the United States or some pundit. It's the person next door who all of a sudden is hating you because you have a different idea about should you wear a mask or should you not or whatever else COVID wise or anything else. So it's like, I think I had a more naive, um, a naive view of humanity in April of 2020 than I do now. So well, thank you. And I'm, and I'm, I was somewhat nervous about bringing it up because I know that, um, uh, it is old at this point and there's been a lot no, of, I'm happy you did. uh, uh I'm but happy I wanted to article like within the last two days, I was like, not, not, even, <laughs> not even wondering if you were going to bring it up. Just like I take that down. Like, I don't know, you know, it's funny. <laughs> uh, okay. But, um, I, what do you think of the recent um, more political songs like Eric Clapton's This Has Gotta Stop or Loza Alexander's Let's Go Brandon? Uh, Kid Rock just came out with We the People. Like, I know I, I did see one of your songs that um, came out in 2020 that was uh, you wrote it in response to lockdowns. But mm-hmm. um, and then you said it kind of still applied applied to the the whole racial situation with the, the riots going on. And yeah, for so those, I was for those listening. It was that song called Everybody Else. Everybody Else Going Crazy. Yeah. Is everybody else? Yeah. Going crazy? Yeah. Yes. Yes. That is the song. So I'm wondering what you think of these uh, these other um, songs that have come out recently um, that are political in nature that that bring up these cultural moments we're in. So full disclosure, I have not heard them. I know (laughs) that the Let's Go Brandon one was like number one for a while on iTunes. And even though I like Eric Clapton, I didn't go out of my way to listen to the song probably because the second half of the answer is I don't tend to be interested in activist songs, whatever they are. Now there's a caveat to that. Like there are, so Crosby, Stills and Nash is one of my favorite bands, like growing up listening to them. I did see Love. that on your Spotify, like list of like oh, yeah. Cecil's favorite songs, only they're all Sorry, blacked was- out. <laughs> Because Spotify doesn't carry them anymore. <laughs> oh, right. Well, yeah. I mean, so, yeah, I had was very mad at Neil Young recently. Because <laughs> I'm like, yeah. dude, I, I actually like your work. And I like what you did with Crosby, Sills, and Nash. But, like, 
I mean, Neil Young has a song, Ohio, which is about the Kent State shooting in, in the late 60s during the Vietnam War. And that's a, that's a great song. And, and so it's like, I know that songs can, I know that art can be quality even when it's activist art or it's art with an agenda. But I think in general, it's, it's hard for it to be so. Because I, I don't know, there, and this is, this is one of those discussions that it'd be fun to have other philosophers, you know, I'd, I'd love your thoughts on it, just in terms of, um, you know, do ideas get in the way of the appreciation of beauty? And, and I think very often they can. Like, I mean, I think we can all think of pieces of art, whether it's a movie or a song or even just writing, you know, where it's like, they're hitting you over the head with the message that they want you to glean from the song. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, you don't want songs to be meaningless. You don't want art to be, to not make you realize something. But I think like, I think that the best art makes you realize, like makes you appreciate the beauty of life. I think, I mean, people, especially in this day and age. And that Roger Scruton documentary is all about this. People want you to think that like art, art's not about being beautiful. It's like, well, beauty to me. And I just, I wrote, I think I tweeted about it last couple of days, but to me, like beauty is that sensation where you're, you're looking at something or you're hearing something or you're watching a movie or whatever. And you're overwhelmed by the experience of, oh, okay. Life, life is worth it. What I'm doing right now, this is worth it because it feels amazing. And again, it's not like somebody giving you a back rub or having sex. Like it's not that feeling, but it's a feeling in your body. It's a, you may not realize it. I don't think people sit, sit down and think about like why they're drawn to something pretty or like, or, you know, music that they like, why that is, but it's a feeling. And yeah, I, I just, I wish we spent more time with that and, and figuring out what it is that moves us on that level on like what makes us appreciative to be alive as a, because I think the more appreciative people are to be alive, the better they treat each other. And it's not just some pragmatic solution. I don't want the point isn't just so that we all treat each other better. Like to me, the point is, is being alive and enjoying it. it it's so frustrating because it's so easy to take what i'm saying and to quickly like go the hedonistic route oh for all who are just here to like have pleasure well then like mm, the orgies yeah. next door you know <laughs> it's like well, well the, the, they're different you know the orgy pleasure brings a lot of detriments you know it, it if casual sex for example or group sex or like the safety issues of that or, or, or simply thinking that it's just the pleasure of the body that you're here for. When in truth, it's like, yes, I think you're here for pleasure, but it's a totally different kind of pleasure. And I think it's much more akin to what people feel when they give thanks for their life, when they're in those moments where they're like, I love living. Thank you for this. Thank you for my child. Thank you for this piece of music. And I think it's the similar thing to why people give thanks to God. I think like there is something about giving thanks for what is being thankful for your experience, 
that evokes even more pleasure from what it is that you're doing. I, so. I think to some extent, what, the hedonism thing is the is the dopamine hits. It's the real easy right. pleasure, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking right. about something that brings you more contentment over, you know, like like all the little moments that bring you that kind of contentment. But also, but I've I've used the phrase like getting teary eyed often like yeah. in the last few months, like on Twitter when I'm talking about this, I'll use the phrase getting teary eyed, which is like. I want people to realize what I'm talking about is that feeling that can be overwhelming, that like can, that gets up inside you and you're like, wow, I'm moved to emotion because of this thing I just experienced. Again, whether it's just something your friend just said passing as he walked by, or it's some movie that you watched, or it's some like life accomplishment you did. Like, you know, you just finished your doctorate or whatever, and you get teary eyed. I'm like, there's a re I think there's something in you getting teary eyed that's pointing you toward the best thing of life. And it's like, go after whatever that is. I don't know what that is for you person. I'm speaking to everybody ubiquitously, <laughs> but it's like, I don't know yeah. what that is. I'm not trying to say it's this one thing, but I think, I think people need to go toward those things that get them all like choked up. Because it's like those things are the things that are full of meaning. And those are the things that you do, that you come away from feeling so very happy that you did them. And those things, I think, rarely have some drawback. It's like doing drugs has a drawback. You know? <laughs> Drinking to excess has a drawback. It feels great, but it has a big drawback. Whereas like accomplishing something and feeling that feeling of accomplishment or creating something beautiful or appreciating something beautiful. Like, I don't know what the drawbacks really are. So, you know, I, to bring it back to the, the, the question um, about art from the perspective of those kind of po more political, cultural uh, reactions. Uh, you asked, you, you asked me a little bit like what my thought is on that. And I think, and from an artist's perspective, like, you cannot quite stop yourself half the time from at least reacting through art to your moment. Mm -hmm. um, I get that. Um, but, and I think this is kind of important, is that um, it's something I learned from grad school from a, a poet, a long dead poet. It's called tact. Like you can bring it, like maybe that first instance of, uh, you know, your first draft or whatever you, you know, want to call your first attempt is, um, is that visceral, untactful, bludgeoning hmm. uh, address of, of the moment, but then you have to bring it back. Like that's, that's, I think that's where, um, and in, in um, fiction, they would say, and, and playwriting, they would say, then you bring it back to ambiguity, because ambiguity, you're not supposed to walk your audience towards the conclusion that you want them to have. And what you just said made me think that even from a, just from the level of connecting to a piece of art, right? If, if the art is about the idea, if, if it's about pushing a specific take on as you said, the moment, or if it's pushing a specific philosophy about life or whatever, like a lot of people don't agree with this idea just because humans are all different. So you're going to have a lot of people don't agree with this idea. Whereas if you 
talk about something that's not idea based and you talk about just like what it is to be alive, you know, you create characters who are, you know, who fall in love or are jealous or who are weak and then strong in these moments and who have a wide range of, of human elements, then the, the, the audience I think is much quicker to, to connect with the art because it's like, they're not fighting some, they're not fighting like, Oh, do I have to agree with this idea? Oh, do I have to agree with their take on the present moment? They're just saying like, Oh, the characters seem real. And that's very believable. And so, yes, I will let myself be pulled along in, in this experience. I think the only time that you're allowed to really cut loose in examining the moment is satire, to me, anyway. Like, I feel like that's the that's the medium for that. Um, because sometimes people react to... They, it's so obscure at times that people react to the wrong thing. Sure. Um, uh, and uh, well, but it's great I, that you brought it up because I've wondered that. I mean, like George Alexopoulos is that how you say his, name, his last name? G Prime eighty five on Twitter. <laughs> He's the guy who's making these amazing pieces of art that are totally satirical and making fun. Like, and so I've I've wondered about that. I'm like, it's art. It's definitely art. You know, like and and yet I think it's easy to fail at it. It's very easy to fail at it. And he's doing something impressive, I think, because. He's consistently not failing. He's consistently <laughs> making art that's just funny and, and um, what's the word? It hits the mark, I would say, <laughs> on, on the level of, of driving the point across, but also like making you laugh. Did yeah. you see the one where, where it was a picture of him essentially like seducing a girl? Did you see oh, that one? No, I missed that one. <laughs> and it, so it's him and he's wearing kind of like this old like 20s get up with like the hat and the trench coat <laughs> and it's the cartoon i we, I we we can link to it or something but it's um anyway so it's him and then this girl who's holding his comics going something along the lines of like i i don't like you but i love your comics i don't like you at all but i love the comics and then and then it's like and then he like rips the comics out of her hand and just like kisses her and it's just it's just this you know it's a four block little comic like he does it was yeah. hilarious but it was just i don't know it was good well, he's doing good work it's it's i think it's really fun it'd be interesting because you you and i are both doing this we're both creators in this culture that's being created he's another creator and I think so much of what, so much of the reason that um, people have gotten so hoodwinked in the last whatever, 60 years at least, I think is because like our main storytelling devices were taken over ideology, ideologically. And so, you know, you have Hollywood and you have um, education, which are basically the two main storytelling devices. You, what, what do you learn in school about the way that life should be? And then what do you see on the TV about the way that life should be? They were taken over. And, but, but the truth is they were taken over because strategically that's what you do. They're the most powerful things. They're telling <laughs> the stories. Like that's what, and so it's like, it's exciting that I'm meeting all of these people who are out there realizing like, Hey, in order to get out of this, we can't just change the law. We can't just change the, we can't just teach people about philosophy. We have to create a culture that's enticing it's just as enticing as the Marvel universe. Like we have, you know, because 
as long as Marvel Universe is out there and that's more enticing than what we're doing, it's going to pull a lot of people that direction. And not that Marvel's really bad or whatever. I just mean, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yes, they have a monopoly on on our the pleasure that we get through storytelling. And we have to take that back. And it's 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 really kind of like it's exciting because in the sense I'm like, I'm just a songwriter who writes essays about philosophy from time to time. But wow, that's actually kind of what what we need to focus on, not just what I'm doing, but people like that creating all sorts of enticing stuff that will bring people into this conversation that we're having over here. Well, and I first found uh, you by your people were sharing your tweets where you you just say puns like and they're they're hilarious, by the way. I love puns. Um, uh, I my uh the my only published play is just full of puns and and it's not it, for me it wasn't like a, i'm gonna set out to write puns i was just like i want to make jokes and this was the best way to make these jokes but you like really think about it it seems like because you produce so many like every day there are puns and they're they're awesome and they're original and i applaud you because they're so clever they speak to how intelligent you are uh so if you if you viewers if you have not been following cecil on twitter you need to because he's he's entertaining uh, in a way that, um, you know, is more jack of all trades than just, you know, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. <laughs> well, you said jack of all trades. I would say jack off all trades. No, yeah. Of course you it's, would. It's a, it's a joke. Um, you asked me earlier, like, how do I spend all my time? And I, and I was about to say something about like before COVID, like before April of 2020, when I finally got on Twitter, like, you know, I spent my time doing music, but I probably wrote more essays. But in the last two years, I've spent a lot of time on Twitter because, because frankly, it's, I mean, it's addicting, but it's addicting. Like, I'm not talking about the Kardashians. I'm talking about philosophy and life and politics and like, what is going on in the world right now? And how do we, how do we first figure that out? And then what could we do about it potentially? Um, But all that to say, like, you know, I don't know, maybe a couple of years before that I started writing puns. And so I've found that me being on Twitter, it's just like, I'm when, when all you do is read other people's words, you're seeing pun, pun possibilities all the time, because that's what a, that's what a mind like mine does. A mind that likes for whatever stupid reason to, it enjoys these puns. It, it does feel like a compulsion. And I've told people this before, like, it feels like um you you watch the office at all no actually that's the one i skipped <laughs> okay there's a, there's a great scene in the office where one of the characters is like trying to sing some little famous melody or whatever and then and they're about to get in the elevator i think and, and the other co-worker like finishes it for him like sings the final little note of the song or whatever and he's like oh like now it's gonna be stuck in my head all day because i didn't get to sing the whole thing through right so he has like this <laughs> mental irritation that's what it is for me with puns like i'll think of one and then i'll sit there like i'll i'll have heard that this word could could mean two things it could be a pun right and then i'll just sit there i'll be like i need to make make some sort of setup to make this funny and if i don't do it then it's like it's just a it's like a nagging pain in my brain 
And that's terrible. I need to talk to somebody about it. <laughs> but it is, but it's a blast. And, and I, and I have, I've been writing, I've been keeping them all logged. So whenever I post one on Twitter, it also goes onto my list and I've got um, close to 700 of them now. Mm. So it's time for me to go and pick like my best hundred. And then, um, yeah, if anybody listening to this is, is a publisher or wants to guide me through the publishing process, uh, I'm going to make a book of these puns because I, they're, they're never stopping. I need to just like <laughs> well, admit I mean, that to myself not? that they're never going away. So just mm-hmm. like every year, like put the top hundred into a thing and then publish that and hopefully make, maybe that's how I'll make my millions. I don't know. <laughs> Well, they're awesome. I definitely think you could make money off of a humor book like that. Um, But finally, I want to ask you, do you have any anti-censorship advice, including anti-self-censorship advice for musicians out there? um, So, man, it's all tied together. I would say part of it is is being we we talked again about being okay with with ambiguity and being okay with like not being certain about things and the more you are that way the more you're able to be truthful with what you say and what you write online because the truth is you don't know what the response is going to be you know what the response is going to be if you speak the party line and you know you're all on board like team blue wave like you can go go into that group and say everything that you're supposed to um, and and get along in a way just fine um, because you know what the outcome will be. You know you'll be protected by that side. But does that mean what you're saying is the truth? And likely in many cases, no, it's not the truth. And so I think the, the thing is like figure out what it is in your life that brings you joy and meaning and do that a lot and realize whatever it is that you do that's bringing you joy and meaning, you likely are going to get to do that. Whether you, especially, I mean, we're talking about musicians, your your question was specifically Mm -hmm. related to musicians. Like you're going to get to keep making music, whether you're canceled or not, it might just be in your garage with your guitar but it, it maybe not, you never know. But the, but remember the thing that you love about music is the music itself. It's not the fame. You know, you might have to get a different job if all of a sudden every place cancels you. I can tell you this. Um, I don't pull my punches on Twitter. I've only been canceled from a gig once. So, you know, and I, I play full time. I mean, I play most every weekend, two, three, four gigs kind of thing. And, um, I've only had a gig canceled once, so it'll happen. But at the same time, it's, it's a, not the end of the world. B the thing that you do as a musician, hopefully is what brings you joy. So just remember, like they can't take that away from you. They can't take the experience of, of making music or hearing music away from you. So say what you feel. And if you can say it non-anonymously too, like, you know, and I, it's, you know, and we're all in different spots in life, but I think the more people who are speaking non-anonymously, the, the ultimately the better, just because it's, we're all herd animals. And so the more we see other people stand up, the more that we do. Well, thank you so much. I think that's very good advice. Uh, thank you for coming on to my show. 
and uh, letting me pick your brain for an hour. It was a lot of fun. And I really enjoyed um, a lot of the things you said. They're pretty, you know, it's pretty amazing. Uh, really great philosophy there, too. Um, and this has been 451 Degrees, the anti-censorship podcast on the Unsafe Space Network. If you walk your fingers over to the like, share, and subscribe buttons, we really appreciate it. Please follow Cecil and buy his album and, you know, listen to his music. He's pretty amazing. And I will see you guys next time. Thank you. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production may corrupt previous psychological programming. If you encounter any of the following individuals, Please administer government-issued neurotoxin immediately. I'm not sure what the neurotoxin will do because I am not a biologist. CRT is a complex legal theory that is needed to combat the epidemic of racist babies. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.